I hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes, but uh, today we continue our study of what is known in the Bible as the Psalms of the Degrees. Uh, and that, and uh, those Psalms consist of Psalms 120 through 134 in the book of Psalms. Uh, the title for the uh, series uh, really captures the central truth in these 15 psalms. It's celebrating triumph over trouble through trust in God. Uh, and for the sake of our guests, especially this football, football team, just to sort of bring you up to speed, uh, we believe that these 15 psalms uh, were compiled by King Hezekiah, who was one of the Old Testament uh, kings of Israel, and he compiled these psalms to commemorate uh, what is known as the miracle of the degrees. This was a miracle that God performed as a sign to Hezekiah that God would do three things. First, that he would heal Hezekiah from a terminal disease which he had contracted. Second, that he would add 15 years to Hezekiah's life. And third, that he would deliver the city of Jerusalem, from the Assyrian invasion, from the Assyrian attack. Now today, we come to Psalm 129. We're sort of rapidly approaching uh, the latter Psalms in this series. And I've entitled this Psalm, Prevailing Through Persecution. You know, while most nations uh, like to boast uh, of their achievements in history, the nation of Israel is just thankful to have survived history. Uh, I think you all realize there has never been a nation uh, on the face of planet Earth throughout history who has been attacked or brutalized more than the nation of Israel. Yet, Israel remains standing, while most of their enemies can only be found in the pages of our history books. Now, Psalm 129 was written right after God's miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. And again, let me just help to bring these uh, football players and other guests up to, uh, up to speed. Uh, the Assyrian Empire at this particular time was the greatest world power on planet Earth. Uh, and uh, I, I shared with you in an earlier lesson that uh, if you study history, even to present day, you could make the argument that they were possibly the most brutal, cruel, wicked, evil empire that there ever was on planet Earth. Uh, uh, they were just a, a terrible force. Uh, at this time in history, there was no nation uh, on the face of the planet that could withstand their might and their uh, their power. They possessed just tremendous military uh, prowess. And they invaded uh, this uh, nation of Judah, the nation of Israel. And uh, we discovered uh, through historical records that in this invasion, they actually overthrew uh, 46 fortified cities in the nation of Judah, not to mention all the small towns and villages that they conquered. They took over 200,000 Israelites into captivity. Uh, they stripped the nation literally of all their wealth. They ravaged their lands, their agricultural crops, uh, stole their livestock. And what ended up happening was uh, the city of Jerusalem was the last city standing. And it appeared as if it was over that everything was just hopeless. But of course, you're never without hope when you put your trust in God. And King Hezekiah and the people put their trust in God in light of the promise that he gave them for deliverance, that promise that he gave when he performed the miracle of the degrees. And you remember how God did miraculously deliver them. He sent the angel of the Lord into the camp of the Assyrians that were right out beside the city of Jerusalem, about to uh, put it under siege. And uh, that angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And uh, before uh, it even became daylight, 
that Assyrian army was returning in shame uh, back to their uh, capital of Nineveh uh, there in uh, Assyria. And, th- and this deliverance of the city of Jerusalem from the Assyrians in, uh, in Jewish history, it ranks right up there uh, with God's deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea uh, when he drowned Pharaoh and the Egyptian army that was coming after them. So this psalm looks back on how the nation uh, was attacked and persecuted by numerous enemies like the Assyrians, but God never let them be destroyed. It was God's faithfulness in the past that gave them confidence to face the future with hope and to face their enemies with a defiant and confident attitude. So uh, you'll see Psalm 129 is printed there for you in your sermon notes. Uh, Like these other psalms of the degrees, they tend to be very brief. And so let's read this psalm in its entirety, which has eight verses. Verse 1, Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, let Israel now say. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion, again, that's just another uh, synonym for uh, Jerusalem. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, as we've done with uh, all the previous Psalms, let's begin with just a very brief overview of Psalm 129. The Psalm is clearly divided into two halves. The first half, verses 1 through 4, is a prayer of thanksgiving for God's deliverance from their enemies. The second half, verses 5 through 8, is a prayer for God's judgment on their enemies. So that's the simplicity of the psalm. First half, it's a prayer of thanksgiving to God for God's deliverance from their enemies. The second half is a prayer to God to judge their enemies. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, Notice there the repeated phrase, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Israel's persecution throughout history has been repeated and it has been relentless. Uh, They could look all the way back to their earliest days of slavery and suffering in Egypt and then trace just a long history of attacks and persecution at the hands of their enemies. But notice the end of verse 2. Yet they have not prevailed against me. This is where I got the title for Psalm 129, Prevailing Through Persecution. God did not keep them from persecution, but He was faithful to deliver them through the persecution. The persecution experienced was barbaric, it was merciless, inflicting horrible and unspeakable pain. Look at how the psalmist describes the persecution in verse 3. It says, the plowers plowed upon my back, they lengthened their furrows. Now you can see very obviously what the psalmist is doing. He's drawing an analogy uh, from the agricultural world. Uh, The imagery of the enemy plowing a person's back, just like a farmer would plow his field, uh, leaving deep furrows, indicates the enemy's attacks left deep, deep, painful wounds and lacerations. Not only in their bodies, but to the very depths of the soul and spirit. But despite the suffering inflicted by the enemy, God was righteous to deliver. Look at verse 4 again. The Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. 
because God is righteous, he will not permit the persecution of his children to run its full course as intended by their enemies. Now, remember how we just said the enemy plowed the back of God's people, leaving deep furrows of suffering? Now we see that God cut into the cords of the wicked. The Lord cut asunder, in other words, the plower's harness so that the work of plowing could not continue. Now, going back to the repeated phrase in verses 1 and 2, many times they have persecuted me from my youths up, as many times as the enemy persecuted Israel, God delivered Israel. That's the point. As many times as they were persecuted, God was faithful to deliver. At times it may have appeared that God had delayed, but he never failed delivering his people, and he actually did not delay. He always shows up, as we know, in the nick of time. Now, moving to the second half of Psalm 129, uh, which is a prayer of judgment on God's enemies, we uh, see in verse 5 a prayer for God to defeat uh, Israel's enemies. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. This is asking that the enemies of uh, the people be brought to shame as they would retreat in defeat. Uh, verses 6 and 7 is a prayer for the wicked to perish. Let them be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Notice the wicked are compared to grass upon the housetops. And that may seem like a strange analogy. But in Hezekiah's day, the people built flat roofs. And it was very common that uh, seed uh, carried by the wind would fall into the dirt that had accumulated on those roofs. The seed would then germinate and it would begin to sprout but because it had no depth of soil, it would soon wither and uh, die, uh, be scorched uh, by the sun. Verse 7 indicates that it would never even get tall enough, that grass would never even get tall enough for the reaper to fill his hand even to cut a single sheaf. Uh, the prayer is, uh, is, is basically this. He's saying, although the enemy may appear to be flourishing at this present moment, they're praying that God would cause them to wither, to perish, to disappear. And when you really study the attacks on Israel in the past, even to present day, and their persecutions, this has always been the case. Initially, it looked like the enemy was flourishing. It looked like the enemy was unbeatable. Uh, and then God would just step in, and you would see that nation then begin to wither, and God take them out and deliver his people. Now, the psalm closes by acknowledging that God's enemies will never know God's blessing. Uh, he will, they will never know God's blessing on their evil intents and plots and plans to harm God's people. Look at verse 8 again. Nor do those who pass by, this is referring to those who pass by their enemies, that they don't say to you, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The clear insinuation is the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people, they have no expectation of God's blessing. The only thing they have is the expectation of God's impending judgment. Now, with that overview of the psalm, look now in your sermon notes at the historical background. And we'll just, I'll just read through this uh, Pretty quickly. Psalm 129, as we've already mentioned, refers to the invasion of the Assyrians as the most recent of many cruel and relentless attacks against God's people. And once again, God delivered his people and judged their enemies. Now, there are two striking similarities in this psalm to the historical narrative that we've already looked at in previous lessons. In uh, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and the book of Isaiah. Uh, the first one is the prayer in Psalm 129.5, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward, corresponds to the historical record in 2 Chronicles 32.21, which tells us the king of Assyria returned in shame to his own land. 
when God sent that angel of the Lord into the camp, killed those 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. It brought great shame and disgrace upon King Sennacherib. And he went hightailing it in shame, retreating back to his homeland. And then the prayer in Psalm 129.6 that God would let Zion's enemies be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up, corresponds to 2 Kings 19.26, which says the Assyrians had made the nations they invaded like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. So in Psalm 129, what Hezekiah is doing, he's asking God for poetic justice. He's asking God to do to the Assyrians what they had done to others. Now, let's now move to lessons to be learned for today. What are the lessons that we can take today and apply to our lives? Because we need to realize, as God's people Israel were persecuted in the Old Testament, God's people today, the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, are going to suffer persecution. And that brings us to that very first uh, lesson to be learned, and that's the reality of persecution. For followers of Christ, persecution is inevitable and inescapable. That's the clear teaching of God's Word, both Old and New Testament, that followers of God, followers of Christ in the New Testament, for them, if you remain faithful, persecution will be inevitable. It will be inescapable. Now, uh, you might want to open your Bibles to these uh, passages as we walk through this, and the first one is John 15, uh, verses 18 through 20, and then you probably want to Go ahead and put your finger in 2 Timothy 3, 12, and 13. So first we'll look at John 15, verses 18 through 20, which is Christ himself speaking concerning the persecution of his followers. And then 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13 is the Apostle Paul and his comments about persecution and what we should expect as believers. So first look at Christ's remarks in John 15, verses 18 and 20. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. Very powerful statement. He says, remember, the slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted your master for his lifestyle and for his beliefs, well, if you are my student, if you are my servant, if you're must say, following my lifestyle, following my teachings, following my principles, precepts, and commands, you're going to suffer exactly what I suffered. And then Paul says this same thing in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, indeed, encircle this next word, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then verse 13, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's, I just put that verse 13 in, in there to indicate that it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. Our culture is deteriorating. And as the culture deteriorates, forsakes God, and falls into sin, uh, we're going to uh, be in a collision course uh, against the culture in which we live. Look at the second truth. And that's the reason for persecution. And very, very simply, there is no just cause. That's the truth that we see in Scripture. The reason for persecution. There is no just cause. John 15, verse 25. Hopefully you're still there in that chapter. Uh, notice... Uh, Jesus said, but they have done this 
to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. He's actually, that, that, that's mentioned uh, three to four times in the Old Testament, uh, especially in the Psalms. And uh, Jesus is quoting that. And he's saying, they hated me without a cause. I mean, what cause did they have to arrest me? What cause did they have to unjustly accuse me and convict me, to scourge me, and then nail me on a cross and crucify me? There was no just cause. They were just demonstrating the evil, perverse nature of mankind. But, of course, God, in His miraculous grace, transformed the cross into an instrument of what? Salvation. As Christ, on that cross, bore the penalty of sin for evil men, the penalty we deserved, and then rose again to offer new life to all who put their trust in Him, who look to Him for forgiveness. Now, the Bible makes it very, very clear, and this is the point here, that if a believer is going to be persecuted, we need to make very, very sure that it is for no uh, just uh, cause. Uh, this passage is not in your notes, uh, but listen uh, as I read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Listen now. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the, the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, in other words, when He returns, you may rejoice. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Of course, blessed by God, because the Spirit of glory and God rest on you. But listen to verse 15. But make sure, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to give glory uh, to God in his name. So again, it just emphasizes its fact that if we're going to suffer, let's make sure we suffer like Jesus for no just cause. Now, this brings us to those next four bullet points that you see in your sermon notes. And in these four bullet points, I've tried to capture the reasons that it is inevitable, that it is inescapable, that a follower of Christ is going to encounter persecution uh, along his journey here on planet Earth. And look at the first one. The first reason we're going to be persecuted as believers is the Christian belief that there are moral absolutes rooted in God's character and revealed in God's Word for which all men are held accountable. The Christian belief that there are moral absolutes rooted in God's character and revealed in God's Word for which all men are held accountable. See, we live in a society where the only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there are no absolutes. And our society has gotten to the point where it cannot tolerate absolutes. It cannot tolerate any definite black and white moral commands or principles. So this puts believers on a collision course with the culture in which we live. I mean, just to state a few, like issues of abortion. We believe in the sanctity of human life, that every life is a precious gift from God. Our world says that life has no value, and it can be taken out. We live in a world that says no to traditional marriage. That is all awry when it comes to gender issues. On the issue of sexual purity, I could just go on and on. There are so many issues where as our culture has abandoned God, they've lost any moral bearings, and they're going to resist anyone that tries to claim that there are moral absolutes to which all men 
are held accountable to. But reality is, you don't break God's laws, you're broken on them. And that is where our culture is today. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, if you want to turn there, emphasizes this truth. This fact that uh, the fact that we embrace moral absolutes uh, is going to put us on a collision course with the culture in which we live. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Very important verse. Speaking to believers, he says, look at your master. He suffered for who he was and what he stood for. So you better, as a believer, you better arm yourself. That is a, that's a fighting word. That is a battle term. That's get the pads on, get out there, and get with it. That's what he's saying. He says, it's going, to be, it's going to be fierce. It's going to be a battle out there. So he says, you need to begin to arm yourselves. Arm yourselves, he says, uh, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God. Now listen to this. This is referring to their past testimony, for believers' past testimony. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That's their past lives prior to coming to know Christ. And then he says, in all this... They, the unbelievers, that old crowd you used to run with, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not going to go into detail, uh, but most of you know my testimony. Uh, i terribly rebelled against God as a, uh, as a teenager. Uh, I did get into alcohol. I got drugs, immorality, you name it, I, I, was, I was in it. And, uh, and I ran with my buddies that was in it. And when I came to know Christ, uh, there was just a dramatic change in my life. It was, it was like moving from night to day. And I literally lost every single friend that I had. Not that that was my desire. I tried to maintain contact with them. I tried to reach out to them. But I would no longer run with them in the things that we used to do. And they began to malign me and challenge me and question me. And I, I did not get angry with them. I tried the best I could to love them and share Christ with them. But that's the reality of the world in which we live, and that's what Peter is saying. And he says, so don't be surprised when you are maligned, when people resist you for your stands on moral issues and absolutes. Look at the next bullet point. Uh, it's not just the Christian belief about moral absolutes, but the truth that Jesus is the only way to heaven, which is a death blow to the autonomy of man, since Christianity requires a man to turn from going his own way and to submit to Jesus as Lord. That is the very essence and heart of salvation. Just like I was going my own way, doing my own thing for so many years, what's involved in coming to it, you have to do an about face. I have to turn from my sin, that's repentance, and turn to put my faith and my trust in Jesus to follow him. And Jesus is very, very clear in this. He says, I am what? The way, the truth, the life. And what? No man comes to the Father but what? Through me. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life that can bring you to God but me. I'm the only hope for an eternal home in heaven. But Men in their rebellion, and I understand this. I was here for many years. I, I mean, I was confronted with the truth of Christ as a child. Uh, my mother was as dynamic a believer as you could ever find. I was raised in wonderful churches that taught the truth, that preached the gospel. But about my mid-teens, I deliberately and intentionally rejected that. I turned my back on the church. I turned my back on the gospel. And I'll be very honest with you. I thought I was doing it from some very high intellectual questions and reasoning. But I look back and I can tell you, my morality was dictating my theology. 
In other words, I couldn't reconcile the way I was beginning to live with the teachings of Christianity, so it was easier for me to turn my back on Christianity and do my thing. In other words, the two were not compatible. They could not uh, be together. So, So bottom line, what we're saying here, for the world, for unbelievers, it's easier to attack followers of Christ as being narrow bigots than to relinquish control and surrender to God. And that's exactly what's going to happen at this point. Uh, Listen to Matthew 10. Several verses there that drive this point home. This is Jesus teaching, teaching his followers. He says, you will be hated. You will be hated by all because of my name. In other words, if you're a true follower of Christ, he's saying, you're going to be hated by all because of my name. And then he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Very similar to what we heard a moment ago in John 15. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, in other words, that's a synonym for the devil, In other words, Jesus said, if they've called me the head of the Christian household, the devil, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm your master. I'm your Lord. I'm your Savior. They called me the devil. And you can guarantee if they called me the devil, they're going to malign all who associate themselves with me and are part of my family. So he said, just be ready for it, and don't be surprised when it comes. And then look at the uh, next bullet point. Not just more absolutes, not just the fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but another reason you're going to be attacked and persecuted is the godly lifestyle and witness of believers, which serves as light exposing sin and pointing to Jesus. The godly lifestyle and witness of believers, which serves as light, exposing sin and pointing to Jesus. And again, I understand this. I, I, I can go back to my days of sin and rebellion when I was antagonistic towards Christianity, antagonistic towards the church. And, and it just it's easier to try to extinguish the light than to be exposed by the light. And that's what a sinner does. He doesn't want to be exposed by the light. So what do you do? You try to extinguish the light. You try to remove the light. So you feel comfortable to do whatever you want to do without any restraints. And Jesus taught this, John 3. You can turn there in your Bibles. John 3, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, this is the judgment that the light, referring to himself, has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, just like I hated the light earlier in my life. Why? And does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought or coming from God. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. He's referring again to the testimony of believers. He's looking first back to their past life prior to Christ and then looking at where they are now. He says, verse 8, For you were formerly darkness. That's a perfect description of Andy Merritt. I was in total darkness, void of light, running from the light, doing my own thing. And it was all about me. Pride and selfishness, my lust, my desires, my ambitions, my interests. He says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. God's light penetrated the believer, that, that unbeliever's heart, penetrated my heart. The lights came on, and there was a dramatic change. And he says, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So, you know, using again my example, I went 
from wanting to please no one but Andy Merritt to one desire, and that is to please God, to submit to His authority, to serve His agenda now, to seek His approval. Because once caught by His love, there is no escape. And you want to love Him for loving you. And you want to live your life as a token of admiration, adoration, and worship for who He is and what He's done for you. And then, he's, and then he says this. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Notice, not only does the light of Christ expose sin, but he's saying here, the witness of believers, their lifestyle, it is like light exposing the sin of unbelievers, and it makes them very, very uncomfortable, and it's going to make you subject to attack, to malignment and persecution. And then look at the last bullet point, and that is the believer's conviction that no earthly authority has the right to command what is contrary to God's laws, and if they do, it is the duty of Christians to disobey. And with this terrifies them when they realize that a belie- believers live by this conviction that there is no earthly authority that has the authority that, to, and the right to command me to do what is contrary to God's laws. And if they do command me to do something that is contrary to God's law, it is my duty to disobey. Uh, great example, Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 32. The disciples are brought before the authorities. Verse 28, the authorities say to them, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And again, this is, you know, we, we, we prayed about this just, what, uh, last year, uh, for the sake of our guest, uh, we've always been heavily involved as our tra- into pregnancy center ministry, where we reach out to women that would find themselves in a difficult or problem pregnancy, providing alternatives to abortion. Uh, we were the first church in the nation to establish a pregnancy center way back in 1980, 81. And God is continuing to wonderfully bless that, that, that ministry. And you remember, uh, there was a law passed in California mandating mandating, commanding the pregnancy centers in that state that they, when, when the women came in to them, they had to provide them and give them information about the alternative of abortion, where they could go to obtain an abortion. Well, this put us on a collision course, right? And it was our duty at that point to disobey. You can't, you can't obey an unjust law. And remain faithful to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You have to be willing to pay whatever price. I mean, there, you know, realize, you know, we talk about consequences of sin. Well, there's consequences of obedience as well. It's not always easy to obey God. Sometimes it's the most difficult thing you can do. And as a result, you're going to suffer. You're going to have to pay the price. And that's one example of many that, 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 that I, could, I could offer. Where we're on in this collision course. And there has to be, we have to realize we are ultimately under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's before him and him alone that one day Andy Merritt's going to stand, you're going to stand and have to give an account of your life. Look at the third truth, and this is a precious, precious truth. And this relates to the results of persecution. God uses the furrows plowed by our persecutors, those uh, uh, trenches of of suffering, to sow seeds of blessing into the lives of His children. What a beautiful picture. I mean, our our persecutors, there's this image of them plowing our backs in these long furrows, trenches, 
uh, gashing us to the very depths of our soul and spirit. And it hurts and it's painful. But from God's perspective, he uses those furrows of suffering simply to sow seeds of blessing into the lives of his children. He turns what the enemy meant for evil to what? To the good of his child. That is the greatness of our God. That no matter what is done to us, he can ultimately cause it to work for our spiritual good and his greater glory. So look at three ways that God uses persecution to bring blessing to his children in those next three bullet points. First, God uses persecution to strengthen the faith of his children. He uses persecution to strengthen our faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. At present, at present you may be temporarily harassed. By all kinds of trials. This is no accident. It happens to prove your faith, which is infinitely more valuable than gold, and gold, as you know, as you know must be purified by fire. God is saying, I value the trust of my child, and so I often will allow them to come under persecution, to come under attack to test their faith. Will they stay true to me? Will they stay loyal to me? Will they remain a faithful follower of me? And he does that to strengthen our faith, to refine our faith, to prove our faith, which is precious to him. Look at the next bullet point. God uses persecution to refine the character of his children, not to strengthen our faith, but to strengthen and refine our character. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. We also rejoice... We throw a celebration in our tribulations. Why? That sounds stupid. He says, knowing that tribulation produces something. It produces perseverance. And perseverance produces proven character. Now, these football guys ought to be un understand. Y'all do weight training? All weight training is, is resistance training, right? In other words, you get that weight, and it offers that resistance, and it breaks that player down, breaks those muscles down, where it then gives them an opportunity to be built up. And that's what God does through persecution, attacks, and difficulty. It's, it's like resistance training for the believer. It's like, it's like weight training. And you can know exactly what God's trying to do in your life. For example, God looks at Janet Fluker and says, Janet, I think you need to learn a little greater depth of love toward other people. And you know what God's going to do? In her resistance training, he's going to bring somebody into her life that hates her, that's difficult to love, and it's painful. And she's, Ugh! and God's doing that to give her an opportunity to learn his love. God looks at Jeremiah Means and says, Jeremiah, I, I want to teach you deeper joy in the midst of all life circumstances. How's God going to do that? He's going to bring some sorrow into his life, some difficulty. That's that, that's that resistance, that's that weight. He's going to bring that weight on him. And through that sorrow, through that difficulty, he has to press through in his trust and his faith in God and see that built into his life. God says, Alan Adams, I, I want to teach you a greater degree of my peace in your life. How do you think God's going to do that? He's going to bring a storm into Alan's life. Where, where he, he's struggling to hold on. He doesn't think he has the strength to hold on any longer. And God says, I got you right where I need you. Because this is my resistance training on you, my weight training. And I'm just trying to build those spiritual muscles to teach you peace in the midst of the storm. Or God, he says, uh, Jan, I, I want to teach you to forgive as Christ forgave. Well, what do you think God's going to do? He's going to let somebody wound her, hurt her wrong her. Not because God hates her, because God loves her, and he wants to accomplish his purposes in her life by making her more like Jesus Christ. Now, that's going to be hard. She's going to be overcome. She's going to think she's just crumbling under the load of that weight. But as she trusts God, as she presses through, she learns that precious lesson. That's how God sows blessings into the furrows of suffering in our lives. Look at the, that third bullet point there. God uses persecution to display the witness of his children, to display the witness, not just to strengthen my faith, 
not just to strengthen and refine my character, making me more Christ-like, but also he, he uses the persecution, he uses the attacks as a backdrop to put my witness on display before a lost world to draw other people to Jesus. Great example of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Won't have much more time other than just to read it. I wish I could amplify a little bit more on it. It's such a precious passage. But listen, it's very, very clear. Verse 6, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's talking about conversion. When you were converted, God's light penetrated your darkness, and now you're full of light as he's taken up residence in your heart and in your life. But verse 7, but we have this treasure. What treasure? The treasure of Jesus, the light of his glory, the knowledge of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. In other words, frail clay pots is what he's saying. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way. That word afflicted is thalipsis. We know intense pressure to the point of agonizing pain that hurts. But although I'm afflicted, I'm not crushed. And then he says, and, we, and, and we're perplexed. Perplexed means I hit situations and I'm lost. I don't know what to do. And he says, although I'm perplexed, he says, I'm not despairing. And then verse 9, I'm persecuted. Yes, I'm being attacked for my faith, but I'm not forsaken by God. And then he says, although I am often uh, knocked down, struck down, I'm never knocked out. Because God is always there to pick me back up and get me back into the battle, get me back into the fight. And then he gives, he puts it all together. He says, here it is. I'm always, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in my body. Do you hear what he's saying? Is God allows these things to come into Andy Merritt's life, come into your life, and to use that, all, that suffering as a backdrop to demonstrate to a lost world that your adequacy, your sufficiency is in Jesus and Jesus alone. They can't understand how you know joy in a circumstance like that. They can't understand how you're at peace in a circumstance like that. That gives you an opportunity to put Jesus on display. And then he goes on and he says, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So God sows seeds of blessings in those furrows of suffering by strengthening your faith, refining your character, and using the suffering to provide you an opportunity, a platform to make Jesus known to a lost world. Then look at the last point. Number four, look at our response to persecution, and that is to pray for God to deliver the righteous and judge the wicked, which is really the heart of Psalm 129. That's Psalms, that, that sums up Psalm 129. Pray for God to deliver the righteous and judge the wicked. And one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament is 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That word, if you have, if you, if you have your Bibles open there, circle that word entrust. It was a banking term. It's a banking term where you would make a deposit for safekeeping. And what Peter is saying, therefore, those who suffer those who suffer according to the will of God, they are to deposit, they are to entrust their lives into the hands of their creator who will be faithful to do what is right. And what is right? When the smoke clears, I tell you exactly what you're going to see. The righteous will be delivered and the wicked will be judged because our God is holy and our God is just. Amen? Bow with me in prayer. Father, uh, thank you for this uh, precious lesson on uh, Psalm uh, 129. Um, and Lord, help us realize as followers of Christ that we are on a collision course with the direction of our culture, that it is inevitable, inescapable, that we will suffer persecution, that we will be maligned for our faith in Christ Give us the grace 
to encounter that persecution with grace, with love, with gentleness, ready to give every man that attacks us the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus and not be ashamed of Christ, not to be ashamed of our testimony, but to see that that persecution, that attack, is actually your way to providing us an opportunity to make you known to a lost world and to speak your truth to a lost world. So, Lord, give us the grace to be faithful in the battle, uh, not to retreat in fear, uh, but to continue to go forward in faith uh, to advance uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord... One of the clear things we've seen here this morning, and I don't want anyone to miss it, is that in the end, the righteous will be delivered. And sinners will be judged. The evil, the wicked will be judged. But we thank you, Lord, that you have made a provision for sinners. You have made a provision for those who are wicked and evil. As I mentioned about my own life, my own testimony. A person who turned his back on you, who maligned you, who maligned the church. Yet in your mercy, Jesus died for me while I was yet a sinner. When I was still your enemy, you died for me. And you rose again and you're alive. And Lord, I pray if there's any person here that does not know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that you would let your light shine in their hearts and that they would see, as I saw many years ago, that yes, Jesus died for me. Yes, Jesus took the punishment I deserved, paid the penalty for my sin. Yes, Jesus rose again from the dead. Yes, Jesus is alive, desiring to take up residence in my heart as I would invite him in to forgive my sin and take control of my life. So, Lord, I pray that if that is the state of anyone in this sanctuary this day, that you would bring them to faith in Christ where they would make their heart your home by inviting you in to forgive them of their sins, to take control of their life, and to be a follower of Jesus. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.